This is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. News time right now, 811. You're tuned in to WGNS on this Monday morning, today, the 3rd of August. With us in studio this morning, Attorney John Day. How are you this morning? Fantastic, Scott. Hope you are. I'm good. So last time we talked, you guys were preparing to hand out free face masks, you know, to help fight the spread of COVID-19. How did all that go? Well, that was three weeks ago, and we gave out about 200 that morning. And this Saturday morning, we gave out another 200. Wow. So we're uh, pushing 700 masks, I think, that we've uh, handed out to date. And uh, glad to see that more and more people are wearing them, quite frankly. Now, the ones you guys are handing out, they're the, the washable kind? or how they're, do- Yeah, they're washable, and uh, they're good fitting. They're, they're not quite right for kids that you know they're for a bigger head than mm-hmm. most kids have uh but they're cloth masks and uh they work well i think well in other news some of the things we're going to talk about this morning uh, involve litigation and the whole process of you know what do you do once something wrong is done to you where you feel like you need to get some more answers or you feel like you need some help and maybe you need help in just figuring out what direction to head yeah, I think, uh, you know, the good news, I guess, uh, is that most people have never dealt with a lawyer before. Uh, maybe they've gone to a real estate closing. Maybe uh, a lawyer helped read mom or dad's will and fill them in. But most people have not seen a lawyer. And, and quite frankly, we see a lot of confusion uh, among people about what they should do if they're concerned that they've been wronged in some way. So, yeah, I'd love to share with you sort of how a lawyer looks at the process and can help shepherd people through the process. I guess, first of all, what are the majority of cases you see? What do they revolve around? The majority of calls that we get uh, are either car wrecks and truck wrecks. Uh, Of course, those were down for a little while in April and May uh, when the the economy was uh, shut down because of COVID-19. But we see a lot of those calls uh, every single week. The other thing that we see the most of, quite frankly, is uh, people who believe they may have been uh, a victim of malpractice by a doctor or hospital. That would be a really tough one. I could see where an auto accident, a little easier to understand and gather evidence for. But when it comes to malpractice, that's got to be hard. Malpractice cases are much more difficult to fully evaluate. Uh, Many people, uh, and this is not their fault, but many people are under the assumption that if something bad happens, it's the responsibility of the doctor or the hospital or the nurse or all of them together. That's not necessarily true. In fact, it's usually not true. Uh, Sometimes people have bad results. Uh, Tragically, some people... Uh, will die after a medical procedure, that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody did anything wrong. So what lawyers who uh, do that type of work for a living is, uh, what we do is we listen uh, to the facts and try to make an informed judgment whether a, a a further investigation is appropriate or required under the circumstances. I, I guess a lot of times it 
I mean, it could be everything from the patient's pre-existing health that maybe they weren't quite strong enough to go through a surgery or maybe they took medicines wrong afterwards. I, I mean, there's just so many things that factor. Well, that's, that's two examples of other examples are, for instance, uh, anytime you have in uh, a surgery, there is some degree of risk that uh, a bleeder, that is internal bleeding, uh, of some type will occur if you have an abdominal surgery in particular. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody did anything wrong. Now, it can. <laughs> That's where the devil's in the details. But the mere fact that, for instance, a, a ureter is cut, that's the, that's the tube uh, that, that allows urine to leave the body, okay? Those can be cut during a hysterectomy. That doesn't mean that the surgeon did anything wrong. Uh, uh, the bladder can be hit during a hysterectomy. That doesn't mean that the doctor did anything wrong. The devil is in the details there. That, that's... that's I mean, sounds kind of, I don't know, scary, I guess, when you hear that, that, you know, this mistake could be made, doesn't mean necessarily that something totally went wrong, but it, it's kind of, I guess surgery is scary to begin with. Well, surgery, every single surgery presents risks, and some of the, of the risks uh, result in things that are truly unavoidable. Uh, that's why, quite frankly, and I, <laughs> I don't mean to go off on a tangent here, why I always tell people to be extremely cautious about messing with what God gave you. I'm talking yeah. about plastic surgery, okay? Yeah. There, there are some times when plastic surgery uh, is necessary, medically necessary, and I don't fault people who give it some consideration, but I think anybody who undergoes plastic surgery for purely cosmetic reasons needs to understand there's a risk attendant to it. And sometimes things just happen. I mean, I can, I've talked with women whose faces have slipped off after a facelift. Wow. Okay, so your face slips down your skull, right? And the reason is, after plastic surgery, they smoked. Well, smoke, <coughs> smoking inhibits, impacts the flow of blood, impacts the healing process. Any doctor who does plastic surgery on you will say, don't smoke. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> because if you do, it will affect the healing process. I mean, I, I can't tell you all the horrible things I've seen happen. Now, does that mean you shouldn't have plastic surgery? That's going to be an individual judgment. I just tell people to spend a whole lot of time making sure that it is really right for them. And of course, in every single procedure, uh, there is a risk of infection. And the fact that an infection occurs does not mean that anybody did anything wrong. So it's, I, I just, I urge people to be completely informed and not to work under the assumption, well, I can go into the doctor's office at nine and get out at two and I'll have whatever I don't like fixed. It's not always that simple. So let's say you are the person who had something, you know, medically done and it was surgery, but the day after you left, you felt like, you know, something wasn't quite right. Do you wait another day before you start worrying over the top to where you're saying, I got to call a lawyer. I got to figure out what to do here. 
Or do you need to wait it out a little bit longer? I mean, when I, do you make the call? I'd wait it out. Uh, the, the, the thing is, sometimes there's a minor problem that develops after surgery that will never, ever possibly give rise to legal advice. And you've got a year to take legal action anyway. So I would encourage that people in the beginning, if there's a relatively minor problem that arises, to follow doctor's orders. That is, most of the time when you leave the doctor's office, you are told or you're given a sheet of instructions or you're given both. In the event of the following signs and symptoms, do these things. And some are put ice on it, <laughs> put heat on it. Some are call us. Some are go to the emergency room. It depends on the severity of the symptom. I would follow that advice because your healthcare professional has seen almost all of these complications before. Some of them, as I said, can be anticipated. They don't know who they're going to happen with, but they know that they will happen in some number of people and they know what to do if those situations arise. So I call your doctor, not your lawyer. In criminal cases, you've got a statute of limitations and the same is true with civil cases. And you know, for criminal cases, sometimes you have five, 10 years before, you know, the time is up. Yeah. Or longer before the time is up where you can't file charges any longer. What about civil? Is it always a one year period or is it sometimes longer there? It is almost always one year for adults who are competent. Adults who were incompetent when something bad happened to them, that is, they had been declared incompetent, had more time. But for the typical adult, it's one year from the time of the injury-causing event. Now, let me say this. It is much more complicated than that. Oh. <laughs> okay. There is something known as the discovery rule. And the discovery rule basically states that you have one year from the time you discover or reasonably should have discovered that you had an adverse consequence from somebody else's actions. Now, I tell people not to rely on that, not to think about it, to work under the more conservative one year from the date of the injury-causing event, because even lawyers and even maybe even some judges, although I'll <laughs> we'll just say lawyers, okay, have difficulty applying that rule because it is extremely complicated, this discovery rule. The one-year rule is really easy to understand. If you have an adverse event from a surgery, work under the assumption that the one-year began to run on the date of that surgery. You will never be wrong there. Now, if for some reason you're in a coma for, let's say, I don't know, four months, something extreme, obviously in those cases, that one year would start after that person wakes up and realizes, wait, something's not right. That used to be the law. They changed uh -oh. it. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's, it's more It's outrageous. No, no, it's, a, it's real simple. The rule, your time runs when you're in a coma. Are you serious? Yes, it's outrageous. It is. It doesn't seem right. Morally reprehensible. Yeah. But yes, that law changed in 2011. And if you were incompetent, and once again, I, I, I hate to repeat myself, 
if you were deemed incompetent by a court and were the victim of a medical error or a car wreck or anything else, your deadline is not just one year applicable to you. It can be longer than that. But if you were rendered incompetent by a negligent act, your one year starts to run as if you were fully conscious of what happened. So then you or your family, uh, under the circumstance you described where you've been in a coma for months, your family will have to start taking action for you uh, and take the appropriate action within one year or you're out of luck. Now, when you go about deciding, you know, should we file a lawsuit in this case or not? Are you also looking at, well, you know, if we file a lawsuit, you're suing somebody who doesn't have any assets to turn around and pay you or compensate you to, I guess, right whatever the wrong was, to go back and have another surgery, to go back and do X, Y, Z. So do you look at that as well? Because it seems like if you were to, let's say, file a lawsuit against a truck driver who owned his own truck, owned a house and maybe 10 acres, but yet they had no assets outside of that and they didn't work for a specific company, but yet they ran into you and it was their fault. Do you still move forward with a lawsuit? We look at, number one, did somebody do something wrong? Yeah. Number two, was somebody hurt or killed as a result of that error? And number three, is there some sort of either insurance or assets or income stream from which we can collect money? And all of those things have to be present, okay? So we'll look at the last one first because that's your question. If somebody did something wrong and they caused injury to a person who has called us, but there's no insurance that's available and there's no assets and there is uh, no income stream, in most cases there, we would not file that lawsuit. There's a couple of exceptions. Number one, we have filed those kind of cases against drunk drivers. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason we have done that is that under the law, a drunk driver cannot discharge his or her obligations through bankruptcy. So if you are driving drunk and you hurt or kill somebody, you are on the hook to make that right for the rest of your life. You cannot get rid of that obligation by filing bankruptcy. So we have, from time to time, sued people who were drunk drivers who are either in prison or when they get out of prison, they're going to uh, they're going to go back into the workforce. But who knows what they're earning? We will sue them anyway. Yeah. Uh, because we think they should be on the hook. We've got judgments that is legal pieces of paper that say we can collect money from people who don't have anything right now because they're in prison. But when they come out, we're going to be looking at taking part of their paycheck forever. So what about their property? I always heard that someone's home is off limits within the courts. Is that true or not true? No, your home is not off limits. Uh, where things get a little bit dicey is, number one, many people don't have equity in their home or don't have much. And a certain portion of your equity can be protected by a bankruptcy court, okay. number one. Number two, many homes are held in the name of a husband and wife uh, as what we call either uh, 
tenants uh, buy the entirety, fancy legal word, that basically mean the husband owns the whole house and the wife owns the whole house, and they, they get it from the other one at the date of death. In that case, it's very hard to get at any sort of equity in the home while both people are still alive. Um, so, but property is important. Uh, it's because there are lots of people who have property but don't carry much insurance. I'll give you a classic example. I got called uh, to sue a lawyer uh, 20 years ago who had settled a case for a young man who was rendered paraplegic uh, by a, a, a gentleman who was driving across the center line, hit him head on. And a, a lawyer settled that case for the insurance policy limits. It was $1 million. People say, geez, a million dollars is a lot of money. It is, not for a paraplegic, okay? What the lawyer did not do is determine whether the person had any assets over and above the insurance because when you commit a wrong, you hurt somebody, you take their life, you are responsible. You may have insurance that helps relieve part of the financial burden on you, but you are responsible for what you do and what the lawyer in that case did not do is did not check to see what assets the driver had. And that driver in that case had over 300 acres of farmland in Williamson County in his own name. Wow. Again, we're talking with local attorney John Day this morning. And, you know, we've, you know, I'm sure all of us have heard stories of, well, so-and-so was in a car wreck. They sued. They received four hundred thousand dollars after paying all the fees you know and all that related to the court process and, and you think and that person probably thought as well you know four hundred thousand sounds like a good amount of money but then five years down the road that person has to have a surgery because you know the the problems that were caused from that first accident just carried over into their life and then they have to have another surgery you know 20 years down the road and then they quickly realize well that 400 grand is almost gone now and I didn't anticipate having all these surgeries because of what initially happened. Is there any recourse there? No. Uh, when you settle a case or when you go to court and there's a trial and there's a legal decision that you win and you collect a certain amount of money, it is your responsibility. You are basically undertaking responsibility for any other consequences of the wreck. So it, when you settle a case, for example, you sign a piece of paper, it's called a release you release, that is you give up all claims that you might have against this person that you're settling with and with their insurance company. So what good lawyers do is they try to anticipate what is likely to happen in the future and make a provision for that as part of the settlement. So for example, let's assume that you're in a car wreck, uh, you're hit from the side your left hip is broken, you're 45 year old, um, and uh, you have to have a hip replacement. Okay, that's 60, 70, $80,000 in hospital bills. But the average hip lasts 15 years. Now it may be 12 and it may be 16, uh, but let's assume that it's 15 years. If you're 45 and you get a new hip, you're gonna need another one at 60, and you're probably going to need another one at 75 because your life expectancy is in excess of 75. 
right? For most yeah. people, it depends on your general health. It depends on race. It depends on gender, quite frankly. But particularly, if you are a female, your life expectancy was going to require you to have two more hips. The reasonably careful lawyer is going to go to a doctor as part of this case preparation and say, Dr. Miss Smith uh, has already had one hip replacement. Do you think she will have another one? More likely than not. That's the test. Not might, not could have. Is it possible? The test is more likely than not, is Miss Smith going to need another hip replacement or two? Yes, John, I think she is going to need two more hip replacements. Doctor, what is your opinion on what that costs in today's dollars? That's going to cost $70,000 for each hip replacement. So what the lawyer would do in that case is take into account $140,000 in future medical bills associated with that future medical care and include that as part of the presentation to the court in term, if there's a trial or as part of the settlement negotiations. Again, Attorney John Day with us this morning. How does your office go about, I guess, investigating the initial claim that somebody has? Because that's got to be tough because you were saying, you know, with medical malpractice, it's, it's sometimes pretty difficult. You've got to look at all these different avenues of what was supposed to happen, how it's supposed to happen, what normally happens, I mean, there's just all these different things you got to look at. So how do you start out an investigation into a case? It depends on the type of case. Let's take a simple one first. Okay, somebody calls uh, us this morning and says, John, I was in a rear-end collision 10 days ago. Uh, I, uh, the police report is out. Uh, I'll send you a copy of the police report. I was sitting there minding my own business when we got hit by uh, from the rear I was taken to the hospital via ambulance. I was treated and released. I uh, went back home. I saw my normal doctor three days later, and uh, they've advised me to take it easy, and I'm supposed to go back today, and they're going to let me know if I need physical therapy. Okay, I've, I've heard hundreds of those calls. I've talked to hundreds of those people. I understand that medicine. I understand that drill. I don't have to do a whole lot of investigation to understand whether that's a case where we can actually help people. Okay? Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a very routine matter. That's what we do day in and day out. Contrast that with the case where somebody says, uh, my child complained to a pediatrician about uh, a fever and just feeling bad for four or five days. Uh, went to the doctor twice, and then uh, all of a sudden she started to have seizures, and I took her to the hospital, and now they don't know if she's going to make it. Wow. She's still there. That is not a case that I can evaluate over the telephone Yeah, because the medical records are important. The science is important what actually happened to the child, I mean, what gave rise to the seizures? Was it fever, just very high fevers can sometimes? Was it meningitis? I mean, there's a laundry list of things and the mother may not be able to explain to us what happened. So one requires a very intensive investigation. The other one doesn't require much investigation. So what we do is we have two people who answer those calls all day. And when you call us, you go to either Penny or you go to Lauren, 
each of them are trained to ask the right questions, to start to begin to get information, and then it comes to me to determine what additional work we need to do to help. So it goes through this first little process, if you would, of figuring out what direction this person may need to head or if you can help them or can't help them. Right. Yeah, sometimes people will call us and they'll say, well, I was in a car wreck a year ago and I can't get it resolved with the insurance company. What can you do to help? And I'll say, uh, I'm sorry, nothing, because the deadline has passed for legal action. Yeah. So um, uh, it just isn't, we, there's just no way that we can help you under these circumstances. We're going to take a short break. Were you, were you going to? No, 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 no. It'll wait. Right now that time, 835. But when we come back, maybe let's figure out, I guess, what that process is. After you do the initial investigation, what, what do you do next? Perfect. I'd love to talk about it. Thank you. We will be right back. A quick check on the weather first. We'll see a few spotty showers and thunderstorms here this afternoon with a blend of clouds and sunshine developing a high in the upper 80s. Winds out of the west around 5 to 10 miles per hour. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 66. Here at Music World and Drummer's Den, we try to be a unique store, a pro-grade store, but one that also the beginner is going to feel comfortable in. So whether you're a beginning musician looking for those starter lessons, or whether you're a pro player who really needs that pro equipment, that's what we want to be here for you. Hi, this is Tom. We offer a variety of lessons in guitar, bass, keyboard, and drum set. This is Dave Kivanimi inviting you to come by Music World and Drummer's Den in Murfreesboro across from Indian Hills. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas's Restaurant. We're excited to announce that our dining rooms are back up and running. We may not be at full capacity and we may not have all of your favorite menu items or the favorite touches that you're used to having, but at the same time, we are excited to be able to serve you. We have brought our servers back. We have retrained them. Our cooks are excited to put the steaks on plates that you can cut with a real knife as opposed to plasticware from your home. And I invite your family to come and join our family back at Demas's Restaurants on Broad Street in Murfreesboro. This portion of the show brought to you by Mapco. How do you feel about two for three dollar Lay's or Cheetos? What about regular M&Ms for only a dollar? These are just a handful of the sweet deals you'll find right now at Mapco. You'll be surprised how they always have great deals for your everyday cravings. And don't forget to download their My Rewards mobile app to earn points toward items like ice-cold fountain drinks and even fuel. The app is available for both iPhones and Androids. Stop by and save at your local Mapco today. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Hey guys, I'm Marcellus from Bubba Gandy Seafood, the freshest seafood in town with a new delivery every single week. The Gandy name started in the seafood industry over 60 years ago in Panama City, Florida. Now in the borough. On Memorial Boulevard, across from the Sportscom. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. We're Rutherford County's Place to Talk. In studio with us this morning, Attorney John Day. We're going to take a quick phone call here. Good morning. Thank you for holding. Yes, good morning to you all. Sir, and to you guests, is it a certain limit of time on, say, for instance, oh, 15 years ago, you went someone's bond, and some kind of way, 
they got the money, the bond money, of course. Good old people, they spent it. And you never got your money back. But you got all the paperwork on it. Can anything be done about that? I don't think so. Uh, I can't imagine a circumstance under which the passage of 15 years uh, would still allow for any sort of legal action. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Appreciate that. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for calling this morning. Again, Attorney John Day is with us this morning. Before we go on, where is your office again in Murfreesboro? Well, it's at 1639 Medical Center Parkway, which is right across the street from the hospital. So we were talking before the break, the whole... You know, somebody calls in, this is what happened to me, what direction do I head? Then you look at the case and say, you know, we probably can't help you in this situation or either, yeah, we can help you in this situation. So when you find out that there is something that can be done for whoever the person is, what is that first step in investigating it? The first step is I or somebody else in the office will get on the phone, a lawyer, and explain the process that is explain what we do and that takes 15 or 20 minutes uh it, we also explain how we charge as part of that and then uh we open it up to let the person who's called in as, ask any questions so i've done this thousands of times uh over the last 39 years i understand what questions most people are going to ask i try to anticipate those questions but every once in a while I missed one, and people will just then ask the question. If they're interested in hiring us at that point of time, we can send them a fee agreement, which reflects how we get paid, so everything's in writing and there's no misunderstanding about that. These days, and in the last couple of years, we've been doing that via email with e-signatures. We can also do it by regular mail, or we can meet in person, whatever people want is what we do. Uh, I'm meeting with somebody today at 10 o'clock uh, who wanted to meet in person, not just chat over the phone. Uh, of course, we accommodate that, although everybody will be wearing masks yeah. uh, this time. Uh, there's a lawyer joke in there somewhere, meeting a lawyer who's wearing a mask, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, and, then if, and then we send off that paperwork, get that done, and then we get to work. So when you're you know, after you sign, you know, hey, here's what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. At that point, you start, I guess, pulling the actual medical records, talking to professionals out there in the medical field. If it's malpractice and if it's an accident, car accident, then I guess you start looking at accident reports, uh, finding out more about insurance, all of those things. Yeah, if it's a if it's a car wreck case, we have a list of literally 20 or 22 things that we do. <laughs> upon getting that assigned fee agreement from somebody we check the ownership of the other person's car that that is the fault driver we we check and make sure we've got the crash report we write to the insurance company for the other driver there's a long list of things that we do we start to order medical records uh, in a malpractice case where we normally start is by getting medical records we're trying to understand what happened not just from the point of view of the patient, but also the point of view of the health care provider. So patients sometimes hear and see things differently than the way the medical providers look at it. Mm -hmm. So we don't, and this doesn't mean we don't trust patients, we do, 
but we look at it from the healthcare perspective, or healthcare provider's perspective, and the best way to see their perspective is to what they wrote in the medical charts. We order those charts. Now that's a frustrating process under normal times. It's even more frustrating right now because it takes a while to get those records, but that's the only way that we can investigate those cases is to get a hold of the medical records. How hard is it, you know, once you get those records, how hard is it to actually understand what you're reading? Because a lot of medical wordage would be kind of confusing. I mean, what do you do for help? Well, number one, uh, I've been doing it for 39 years. Literally 40. I, I drafted my first healthcare liability or medical malpractice lawsuit when I was a summer clerk in the summer of 1980. So I guess I've been doing it for 40 years and later helped uh, my partner try that case. Uh, so I've been doing it a long time. I have a pretty good understanding of how medical records are organized and what the terms mean. I don't pretend to be a doctor. I don't even pretend to have the knowledge level of a nurse, but I do have some knowledge. In addition, for the last 27 years, I have a full-time nurse on staff. Ah. So when we get medical records, we have a system, once again, for organizing those records, reviewing those records. Many times we, f- we do a uh, flow sheet of those records. In other words, we put them into an easier-to-read format. Electronic medical records are extremely confusing when printed out. So we have to reorganize those records into a Word document that help us understand the flow of information across the chart. And then we do medical research trying to understand what level of knowledge the doctors probably had or maybe should have had when they're treating this patient. Of course, doctors are human. They make mistakes just like anybody. But, you know, we have seen, we've seen police reports, we've seen, you know, records showing where whatever the doctor may be a doctor of, we've seen where they were under the influence of some type of drug themselves. Have you seen stuff like that a lot over the years? I can't say that I've seen it a lot. I have seen it. Uh, I think many, many professionals uh, of all types, including lawyers, have drug and alcohol problems. It's tragic. Uh, it is It is what we, it's very stressful what professionals do, quite frankly. Uh, And for doctors, they have the uh, better access than other people do to uh, harmful substances. But I don't, I'm not throwing stones at doctors when I say that. I think everybody understands that there is some percentage of the people uh, who have a problem. But I have seen it rarely. I have seen it, uh, but I've seen it rarely in my work. More often, what I uh, I see is, um, quite frankly, a failure to communicate. Oh, sounds like a song. Yes, <laughs> and but it's a failure to communicate what was actually going on that gave rise to the patient thinking there was an error when in fact there wasn't. Yeah. So, last year we were called on over two thousand medical malpractice cases. I think we took five or six. I can't remember exactly. So there was 2,000 people who were concerned enough about the care they received and the out- or the outcome they received to call us. Uh, 
we spend a whole lot of time talking to people we can't help. And uh, so when I say that there's a communication error, I'm not even saying the doctors communicated wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying that they something slipped or there wasn't a sufficient level of trust there between the doctor and the patient. Uh, so that's, that's tragic for everybody, uh, for them, uh, for the patient. But there's, there are errors, and, and quite frankly, in the United States, enough sufficient number of people die from medical errors every single day that it's the equivalent of a 747 crashing. Wow. Every single day. It's hard to imagine those kind of numbers. Well, it is, but it is a fact. And that's from the healthcare industry itself. And that's just in hospitals. <laughs> Wow. That doesn't include long-term care facilities. It doesn't include doctor's offices. It doesn't include the, the urgent care clinics and that sort of thing. There's a huge issue. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean, and I want to stress this, that not every bad outcome means that a doctor or a nurse did anything wrong. I, I've got a, a text question here before we, we go on a little bit here. It says, if you were in an accident... Say your door flew open while turning, then you hit a bush. Wait, then you hit a police officer. Uh, it's hard to. It's written as if somebody, you know, did voice to text and it's probably oh, yes. missing a few words here. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, but the door shut and somebody threw, flew through the window and was badly hurt. Uh, the adrenaline goes away. Next, you go to the emergency room two weeks later. Your whole left side is in severe trauma. Uh, what do you do in those situations? I don't know that I fully understand that question. I don't know that I, I do either. I can't tell who flew out the door, the driver or the passenger. Yeah, that's... Let me see. Okay, let me try to read this one more time. Okay. And then we'll move on. It says, if you were in an accident, say your door flew open while turning, then you hit a bush... Then the police officer makes you get your proof of registration, but the doors are shut because they're shut against the bushes. You climb through the window three times just to get the stuff out of the car for the officer while also waiting for a tow truck. But you're badly hurt after all the adrenaline goes away and you realize, I guess you were hurt the whole time. You go to the emergency room. Then two weeks later, your whole left side is in severe trauma. Is there a case there? So I guess they're saying the officer made them go back into the car, back and forth to get maybe their insurance, their wallet that was left in the car. I don't know. Well, first of all, it sounds to me like it's a one-car wreck, number one. Number two, it sounds to me like there's only one person in the car, and that's the driver. Number three, it sounds to me like the driver might be saying that the wreck was the fault of the car door. Quite possibly. It says the door flew open while turning. Okay, so if the if doors aren't supposed to open when you're turning. So that tells me that, uh, assuming all that's true, yeah. that the door was either not properly latched, number one, or number two, there's a problem with the door. I, I have not heard of many cases where there's been a defect in the door. <laughs> uh if, let's assume that there's a problem with the door, 
then theoretically speaking, you could have a claim against the car manufacturer if you could prove that the car was sold with an unreasonably dangerous or defective door. Hmm. Okay? Theoretically speaking. I say theoretically because, number one, that assumes that the car is less than 10 years old because you have to bring that type of case, that is a products liability case, against a car manufacturer within 10 years of the date the car is sold, uh, is first sold to the public. Number two, it doesn't sound to me like the injuries are serious enough to justify a claim against a car manufacturer even if there is some sort of problem with the door, which quite frankly I doubt. But the reason for that is to hire an engineer to determine why the door failed, okay, is an extremely, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars to just determine, and this is a person who went to the emergency room, it sounds like two weeks later. Either that or they went to the emergency room, then twice. two weeks later they were still hurting. Okay. I, I, I'm not real sure. I, 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 I don't understand exactly what happened, but I, if based on that information right now, I think that would be a, a very, very unlikely that that would be a case that a lawyer could help with. And it, they texted again. It said uh, the door needed bushings. The police officer made them climb through the window without waiting for the tow truck to arrive. I guess to pull it out of the ditch or the bushes. Okay. So it, I, I, it sounds like more so the blame is on, is what they're saying, the blame is being put on the police officer for making an injured person climb back and forth through the window of a car. Yeah. Once again. Tough one. A very, very tough case, I think. I, I, I need to know a whole lot more, but um, I don't have a whole lot of hope that there's much a lawyer could do to help that person. So going back to once somebody calls, they talk to you about the potential case, then you order the medical records, you look through the medical records to decide what direction to head next. What, what do you do after you read through all those medical records? So we're talking about a, a potential medical malpractice case? Yes. We make a judgment about whether or not there's a significant enough likelihood that the potential case has merit. And if it does seem that way to us, then we, de we start to hire doctors to have them evaluate what happened. So in a medical malpractice case, you not only need to prove that the doctor made a mistake, that is, they failed to do what a reasonably well-trained, reasonably prudent doctor would do under the circumstances, or nurse, same rules apply to nurse, or a pharmacist, or any other healthcare professional, and then you've got to prove that their mistake, that failure to do what was supposed to be done, caused an injury that would not have otherwise occurred. So we have to hire often two experts, one to say, for instance, did the emergency room doctor do the right thing here? Did the primary care doctor do the right thing here? Did the surgeon do the right thing here? That's one. And then did the failure to do the right thing cause an injury that would not have otherwise occurred? So here's an example I use all the time to demonstrate that. A woman goes in to see her uh, 
uh, OBGYN for her annual checkup. She's got a lump on her breast. Uh, the doctor that she normally sees is not there that day. There's another doctor who's covering the exam because the other the, her primary doctor is out of town. This doctor doesn't think the the breast lump is any big deal. He says it's probably fibrocystic disease. Don't drink as much caffeine. It'll be all right. But a month later, it's growing a little bit, and she goes back to see her doctor. She gets to see her regular doctor this time, and that doctor says, eh, we better check this out. Let's do a mammogram and check it out. And it turns out that it's suspicious for cancer, and a biopsy confirms that it's cancer. Is there a malpractice case against the first doctor? Okay, the question is, did he do anything wrong? Maybe. I need to know a whole lot more. What's the family history of the patient? Is there a history of breast cancer in the, in the family? What's the location of the lump? It makes a difference. The, the breast is divided into four quadrants. The upper outer quadrant is the most likely place for breast cancers to develop. Let's look there and see if it's there. That increases the suspicion. What other symptoms were there? What size was it? Had it ever presented at any previous mammogram? Were those looked at? All sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. So I, don't, I can't tell you whether or not the doctor made a mistake. But the next question is even tougher. Even if there was a mistake made, did it cause an injury that would not have occurred otherwise, okay? The odds are no. Why? Because the delay is about a month. Breast cancers typically, typically there are some exceptions, don't grow that fast. So you would have had the exact same treatment course whether it was diagnosed today or 30 days earlier. Now, once again, some, some healthcare provider is going to say, John Day doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> there are some breast cancers who go very, very fast, and every day makes a difference. I know that, okay? I'm talking I, at, at the 10,000-foot level. Yeah. It is very, very difficult to demonstrate, by, have a doctor testify. You have to have an oncologist testify that had this tumor been diagnosed 30 days earlier, it would have altered the treatment course. So we have to hire, the short answer to your question is, sometimes two, sometimes three, as many as four different types of experts to prove that an error was made and that the, the fact that the error was made made a difference. If you would have had the exact same outcome, you've got the equivalent of running a stop sign without hitting anybody. You've made a mistake, but you can't be sued for it because you didn't cause an injury to anybody. Again, Attorney John Day with us this morning. So it is, I don't know, a, a very, I don't know if difficult would be the right word, but a, a very long process sometimes just to get to the bottom of, do we keep pushing forward with this lawsuit? It takes months to to evaluate a medical malpractice case fully. Now, there are certain cases that we've done enough of that we can evaluate quicker than others. Fair to diagnose a heart attack yeah. case. 
uh, we've handled a bunch of those over the years. Quite frankly, you know, we still consult with experts because every case is different, but it's a quicker course of action. Leaving a sponge in somebody or some other foreign object operating on the wrong body part. So you go in to have your left knee operated on and they operate instead on the right. All these, those are relatively simple cases that can be investigated relatively quickly, but complex cases can take months to evaluate. Interesting stuff. If anybody has questions, we're already out of time. They can give you a call, stop by your office, John Day, right here in the borough on Medical Center Parkway. That's right. It's uh, 615-867-9900. Well, thank you very much for joining us this Thanks, morning. Scott. Time right now, 9 o'clock. Stay with us. We do have local news and uh, more, including CBS News, all coming your way next.